Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 13 of The Weekly List Podcast, which accompanies week 93 on The Weekly List website, theweeklylist.com, and corresponds to the week ended August 25th, 2018. Welcome. So much for the lazy days of summer. This was actually one of the longest weekly lists yet with 170 not normal items. It was an ominous week for Trump as three longtime allies turned on him. Michael Cohen, Alan Weiselberger, his longtime bookkeeper, who has been his bookkeeper for decades, and as well as we talked about in a prior episode, did his tax return some years. He okayed all payments that were made out of the Trump organization. And the third is David Pecker. And yes, we had a lot of fun with his last name this week, but he owns AMI, which in turn owns National Enquirer and has been part of silencing stories for Trump and as well during the 2016 campaign attacking Hillary Clinton. All three of those now, um, Cohen has pleaded guilty this week and the other two are offered immunity in exchange for testimony. So we're gonna talk about that. If you've come to one of my book events, you've heard me talk about the three paths to ending Trump's presidency early. And my number one has always been, out of karmic delight, I suppose, that the Me Too movement would take him down. And this week, in terms of hush money payments to silence women, and not only the payments, but the cover-up that could very well come to pass. We're going to talk more about that. This week in court, Michael Cohen essentially called Trump an unindicted co-conspirator in the crimes of making these hush money payments with the, quote, principal purpose of influencing the 2016 presidential election. And Cohen was brought in on other cases as well. We'll talk about that. As Cohen was pleading guilty right down at the same time, we could almost put him on a split screen. Paul Manafort was simultaneously being found guilty of eight felony counts in Virginia. So we'll be talking about that trial as well. And here's an important takeaway before we get into what happened this week. Despite all these stories coming out, not a single Republican spoke out against Trump this week despite the fact that he might have been in an unindicted co-conspirator crime, hush, nothing. In fact, towards the end of the week, several prominent Republicans, including Grassley, who chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, said they would be open to confirming a new attorney general as Trump spent a good part of this week attacking Sessions, even though Sessions fought back and saying he hasn't been loyal to him and he might replace him. Obviously, that would put... Uh, the Mueller probe at risk. So we're going to talk about all that. And then I also want to focus on something that is disgusting and alarming. But as these stories were coming out and almost all the stations and all the news were focused on Cohen and Manafort, what was happening over at Fox News, they were focusing on the death of a young woman at University of Iowa whose family has specifically asked that her death not be politicized. She was killed by an undocumented immigrant from Mexico. And this was telling Newt Gingrich, a Trump ally, told Axios, he actually went on the record with this and said, quote, if Molly Tibbetts is a household name by October, Democrats will be in deep trouble. And that message was amplified by Russian bots on Twitter. We're going to talk about that as well. 
So those were the highlights this week. I want to get into how the week started um, as we went into last Sunday. And as you remember last week, Don McGahn, who is a White House counsel, the New York Times had reported is cooperating or has cooperated in the Mueller probe from the earlier time when Trump's legal team had been of the opinion it was best to be fully transparent and um, available to talk and and be um, working with the Mueller probe to bring it to an end. Obviously, their strategy has switched. Uh, but Trump spent a good part of Saturday and then Sunday as well lashing out at the New York Times for that story, calling them the failing New York Times, saying that they wrote a fake piece and saying, quote, this is why the fake news media has become the enemy of the people. So much for all the op-eds last week on not calling the media the enemy of the people. That took exactly one day this week for Trump to do that again. Um, he continued to say that the media is, quote, very angry at the fake news in the New York Times and said some members of the media are actually calling to him to complain and apologize to him, although he couldn't cite a single name of anyone who had done so. He tweeted that the New York Times implied that McGahn giving testimony to the special counsel and he must be a John Dean type of rat in capital letters, R-A-T. So many lives have been ruined over nothing. Trump also referred to the Mueller probe as McCarthyism at its worst and repeated the false charge, no collusion, no obstruction, except by crooked Hillary and the Democrats. Trump also compared the Mueller investigation to McCarthyism in another tweet, saying, study the late Joe McCarthy because we are in a period when Mueller and his gang make Joseph McCarthy look like a baby. Then ironically, Sunday, Lenny Davis said, that Michael Cohen has actually reached out to John Dean, the former White House counsel who helped to bring down the presidency of Richard Nixon. Also on Sunday, Rudy Giuliani went on Meet the Press, and when asked about his comments about Trump testifying in the Mueller probe and whether that would be a perjury trap, Rudy Giuliani said, truth isn't truth. That reminded everybody of Kellyanne Conway's comments in week 11, of the alternative facts. After the interview, Merriam-Webster Dictionary tweeted the definition of truth, just to remind us, because we seem to be losing that. So that has been a story that's continued. The New York Times followed up their reporting on Sunday to say that Trump's legal team doesn't actually know what McGahn told Mueller's team when the interviews occurred. There were multiple interviews. After McGahn was first interviewed in November 2017, Trump's legal team did not ask for a complete description, and McGahn's lawyer did not inform them of what was said in subsequent interactions. So keep that out there. There's one force, potentially McGahn. So we're going to talk more about Cohen and Manafort and spend some time there. But before we get to that section, I want to talk first some of the other things we cover each week. Next, I want to talk about everyday racism and some examples of what's happening in Trump's era. Uh, on Monday, CNN reported Darren Beatty, a speechwriter for Trump who attended a conference frequented by white nationalists, the H.L. Menchkin Club Conference in 2016, has left the White House. On Tuesday, the Washington Post reported Trump advisor Larry Kudlow hosted Peter Brimlow, the publisher of a website that serves as a platform for white nationalism at his home last weekend for his birthday party. On Monday, 
at a White House ceremony for a Border Patrol agent, Adrian Anzaldua, Trump introduced him without attempting to pronounce his last name and said Adrian could, quote, speak perfect English. Aye. Um, <laughs> the New Jersey Globe reported that Rick Jankowski, a Monroe Township School Board candidate, made racist and homophobic comments on his Facebook page, including calling black people, quote, fucking monkeys. On Wednesday, NBC News reported Christine Halquist, we talked about last week, who last week became the first transgender gubernatorial candidate, is now getting a steady stream of death threats and other personal attacks. Kansas City Star reported Michael Dargy, a Westport security guard, ordered a, quote, Trayvon Martini from a black bartender at a Westport bar on Monday. On Wednesday, he was fired. Atlanta Journal-Constitution reported Buford City School Superintendent Gay Hamby was named in a race discrimination lawsuit with recordings for yelling racist slurs at a group of black workers at a construction site. On Friday, Texas Monthly reported on a complaint by a Honduran woman who entered the U.S. in June and was separated from her nine-year-old daughter and met an immigration officer who was nicknamed, quote, the deporter, and told her, quote, you are all ignorant and keep coming. In the complaint, she says, he, he, she says, quote, he called me in to sign my deportation papers, and a couple days later, I was told I did not qualify for asylum, and told, you don't understand, we don't want you in this country. I just want to make a side note, there was a lot of media coverage um, in the last month on the separated families, but that's suddenly gone quiet. And coincidentally, the Trump regime has basically stopped reuniting families. On Friday, PBS reported that an updated, updated report from the federal government, 528 migrant children remain separated from their parents. Of those, 23 children are under the age of five. That's almost no progress from the time that the court order uh, in San Diego, the, the court there had ordered them to complete reunification process. There are about 343 children whose parents are no longer in the U.S. The Trump administration has made almost no progress, again, since that court-imposed deadline. Um, we're talking each week there, you know, maybe 10 families are being um, reunited, and they just seemed, without the media attention of the story, um, just seem to have stopped working on it or stopped prioritizing it. And we are seeing, and I've retweeted some of these on my feed, where parents are reunited with their children now and the children reject them. Uh, it's been so long and so dramatic, especially for some of these younger children. It's lifelong trauma that has been imposed on them for no good reason. On Thursday, Adam Housley became the second Fox News reporter to resign in recent weeks. Housley, who was with Fox News at, for two decades, left over frustration with the direction and tone of coverage in the Trump era. And now let's talk about what's happening with the Trump regime, because part of the reason these weekly lists are so long is there are many hands now at work deconstructing norms, deconstructing our fragile democracy. Um, this break, a repeat name that we've been talking about, it seems like in every weekly list, Politico reported Betsy DeVos's Department of Education 
has dismissed at least five trans investigations involving transgender students who are denied bathroom access. Another investigation has been delayed for at least three years. AP reported the Federal Communications Commission's chair told the Senate panel that Don McGahn called him for a, quote, status update on the agency's action on the Sinclair Tribune merger on July 16th or 17th. Pay expressed serious concern about the merger. Again, remember, we've been talking about this merger, and I'm sure more stories are yet to come, that the FCC, one of their first moves for over a year, they were for this merger. And then as more and more people of Fox News have gone into the Trump regime, and again, these would be direct competitors, Sinclair and Fox News, suddenly and inexplicably, the Trump regime turned against this merger. So keep an eye on that story. On Monday, Bloomberg reported that Trump complained to wealthy Republican donors at a Hampton fundraiser last week that Federal Reserve Chair Jeremy Powell's interest rate hikes. I just want to add here that he is the person who installed Powell. It's his pick. On Monday, Trump told Reuters he is, quote, not thrilled with Powell, adding while he is negotiating with other countries, he being Trump, Powell, quote, should not be giving, he should be giving some help by the Fed. The other countries that Trump is negotiating with are being accommodated. Again, this is unprecedented for a sitting president to be attacking the Federal Reserve. They are meant to be you know, there's supposed to be a separation here between the two, but not in the Trump era. NBC News reported across the federal government, the Trump regime is emphasizing a less punitive approach to combat white collar crime and civil violations, reversing steps by the Obama administration. The regime plans to reward companies that report violation and takes take steps to fix them in areas such as failing to pay overtime and committing financial fraud, as well as smaller fines for polluters that come forward. On Monday, acting EPA Director Andrew Wheeler signed a plan to weaken regulations on coal-fired power plants, replacing the Obama-era Clean Power Plan with the afford what they are calling the Affordable Clean Energy Plan. Just a side note, Obama considered this clean power plan his most important work to ending climate change. And that's gone now on the heels of a decision earlier to let automobile pollute, automobiles pollute more. The new plan, this affordable clean energy plan, erases the Obama administration's efforts to impose pollution control on carbon dioxide pollution and transitions to cleaner energy. The Trump proposal will instead give states authority to make their own plans for regulating greenhouse gas emissions, which we know will go very well in those states that have coal mines and other less efficient forms of energy. Meanwhile, Bloomberg reported that despite Trump's promises, the coal industry is losing customers as utilities turn to natural gas and renewable power to generate electricity. Coal production and consumption continues to decrease. Trump nominated Kathy Kraniger, an architect of his family separation policy who has no background in financial regulation or consumer protection to lead the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That makes sense. Kraniger refused to answer about her role in zero tolerance policy at her Senate confirmation hearing. 
saying she would not discuss the general topic of immigration because it would be a slippery slope. But again, this is Elizabeth Warren's old agency that she founded that has been slowly deconstructed that after they took it away from people that were of the Obama era, they put in for a zero budget. And now they're installing somebody who has no financial or consumer protection background. Wonderful. Reuters reported the Pentagon officials are sounding the alarm inside the White House about the sharp drop in Iraqi refugees who have helped American troops in battle coming to the U.S. as a safe haven. So far, just 48, you heard that right, 48 Iraqis have been admitted compared to more than 3,000 in 2017 and 5,100 in 2016. The Pentagon is, cons is concerned the drop will harm national security by dissuading locals from cooperating with the U.S. On Wednesday, the New York Times reported DeVos is considering a plan to allow states to use federal funding to purchase guns for educators. Yes, I'm going to read that for you again. DeVos wants to use Department of Education money to purchase guns. Yes, you heard that right. The plan would undermine efforts by Congress to restrict federal agency funds on guns and would be the first time that a federal agency has authorized the purchase of weapons without a congressional mandate. You can't make this stuff up. And that story is so outrageous, but it got lost in the chaos. In the beginning of the week, as we started last week on Meet the Press, former CIA director John Brennan, who last week had a security clearance taken away, said he's willing to take Trump to court to prevent other current and former intelligence agencies from having their clearances stripped. And that started yet another battle early in the week. Uh, with Trump escalating his attacks, not only on Brennan, but also Mueller. He called Mueller uh, disgraced and discredited and said his whole angry group of angry Democrat thugs spent 30 hours with my White House counsel, that's going back to McGahn, and said Mueller's angry Democrats are enjoying ruining people's lives, but refuse to look into the Democrats. And then Trump tweeted that he hoped Brennan, whom he called, quote, the worst CIA director in our country's history, brings a lawsuit so he can get documents on how Brennan was involved with the Mueller rigged witch hunt. Trump also said that day in his tweets, this is all Monday, that the Department of Justice official Bruce Orr, who he said is at the center of false allegations in the Steele dossier, should be fired from Jeff Sessions, quote, unquote, justice department. On Monday, as Trump was sending his tweets in real time, First Lady Melania Trump was giving a speech about the destructive and harmful uses of social media at a cyberbullying summit as part of her Be Best campaign. Oh boy, the irony alert just doesn't end. Also on Monday, Melania announced she plans to travel to Africa without Trump in October saying, quote, I am excited to educate myself on the issues facing children throughout the continent. So that was interesting Monday. Also on Monday, more than 175 former U.S. intelligence community and national security officials said in the third open letter on the topic that they are deeply concerned by the politicization of security clearances. So those happen. Um, and then Trump also on Monday had this really bizarre interview with Reuters, which is worth the read. 
so this came out later Monday, and he had told Reuters that he was concerned that the Mueller probe <clears throat> would be a, a perjury trap, saying it's my word against Comey, and he's best friends with Mueller. Again, a false statement. Trump also asserted that he, meaning Trump, retained the power to intervene in the Mueller probe, saying, quote, I can go in, I could do whatever, I could run it if I want, but I decided to stay out. So far, I haven't chosen to be involved. This is, of course, not true. Trump also said the Mueller probe has hampered his efforts to improve relations with Russia and refused to blame Russia for interfering in the 2016 election saying if it was Russia, they played rush right into Russia's hands. Okay, figure that out. And speaking of Russia, I want to talk about some things that came out as our midterms are approaching. We're within three months, two and a half months till the midterms, and the stories are coming out of not normal and alarming things. Um, Reuters reported earlier in the week that the FBI is probing cyber attacks on the California congressional campaigns of two who ran in their primary, David Min and Hans Kerstead, both lost primaries in races that are critical to Democrats taking control of the House, and both were considered the strongest candidates to take on the Republican, and both were hacked. On Sunday, Senator Rand Paul rode on Air Force One and played a round of golf with Trump. Paul recently visited Moscow and in week 92 had been advocating for dropping U.S. sanctions on two Russian lawmakers, one of whom was involved in interfering with the 2016 elections. On Tuesday, a report by Microsoft revealed that Russian military intelligence unit, the same one that attacked our 2016 election, is targeting conservative U.S. think tanks that have broken with Trump on Russia. Microsoft said it detected and seized websites created in recent weeks by hackers linked to Russia's GRU, that's the same group that was indicted in the Mueller probe, that tried to trick people into thinking they were clicking on the think tank's website before being redirected. The think tanks targeted, again, they're conservative think tanks, have been critical of Trump's interactions with and handling of Russia including continued sanctions and pressing for human rights, God forbid. Microsoft also found websites imitating the U.S. Senate. On Tuesday, Christopher Steele won a U.S. libel case brought by three Russian oligarchs who claimed Steele defamed them in his dossier. All three of these Russian oligarchs have a stake in Russia's Alpha Bank, in week 21 of the weekly list, the FBI was investigating ties between Alpha Bank and the Trump Organization. The judge has thrown out the case against Christopher Steele, citing free speech under the First Amendment. On Thursday, and this is a sad story for many of us, Reality Winner, the former government contractor who basically leaked documents to tell us, yes, what we believed happened did happen, um, pleaded guilty to mailing a classified U.S. document to a U.S. news organization that was The Intercept, who handled it clumsily and ended up um, basically handing over to federal agents the identity of reality winner. She got a five-year sentence, the longest ever imposed for a leak. Reality Winner had leaked information which detailed Russian government efforts to penetrate a Florida-based supplier of voting software 
and the accounts of election officials ahead of the 2016 election. We've talked about that with Bill Nelson, too, sounding the alarms of what's happening in Florida. Civil rights activists mobilized to try to stop this week Georgia from closing seven of nine polling precincts in predominantly black county, Randolph County, ahead of the midterms. Stacey Abrams, a black American, is running to be the first African-American governor, female governor in our country, but the African-American governor in that state. The Randolph County Elections Board claims the seven polling places are being shuttered because they're not ADA compliant. The polling places, however, were used during the May 22nd primary election and during a July 24th primary runoff. The Huffington Huffington Post reported during those two, there were no issues uh, with regard to those polling places. And then after much public and social media attention being brought to that as often happens, thank you for everyone for your activism. On Friday, after facing intense national scrutiny, the Randolph County Board of Elections voted to keep the seven polling places open. The consultant who had recommended the closing was fired on Thursday, became the sacrificial lamb. This was an interesting story. The Young Turks reported an election day computer, quote, glitch in Kansas in their most populous county has cast a shadow over the legitimacy of Chris Kobach's victory in the state governor's primary, which he won by about 300 votes. And many people are now raising the alarms, just as background, Kobach won over the primary to be the Republican candidate over the sitting governor. Kobach's current position is Secretary of State. He eventually had to recuse himself from the votes, but there was, as the Young Turks are reporting, some concern of election night hampering. Just as a side note, the same thing in Georgia. Stacey Abrams, who we just discussed, is running against the sitting governor, excuse me, the sitting secretary of state of Georgia. And people are concerned the same thing might happen there. There's been all sorts of issues in past elections with Georgia's um, voter rolls and the, the rest. We had a false alarm this week on Tuesday. The Democratic National Committee alerted the FBI of an attempted hack on its voter base. It turned out on Thursday reported to be a test uh, that the vendor who did ran the test did not authorize and did not check first with either the DNC or their security vendors. So that turned out to be a false alarm. This wasn't a false alarm. On Thursday, Yahoo News reported the White House blocked a bipartisan bill in the Senate, which would have significantly bolstered defenses against election interference. The bill was called the Secure Elections Act, and it had support on a bipartisan basis, was put forward by two Democrats, two Republicans, and had widespread bipartisan support beyond them. On Wednesday, GOP Senate Rules Committee Chair Roy Blunt canceled the markup, which would have been the next step for the bill. No explanation was given. And again, Yahoo News is reporting that call came from the White House to shelf it. So they don't want us to be protected, folks. Between GOP shenanigans and Russia, we have a lot to counter other than getting people to the polls. On Friday, Google informed Senator Pat Toomey, he's a Republican, that hackers with ties to a nation state sent phishing emails to old campaign email accounts during the 2016 election when he was up and running that year to try to hack his campaign. 
the infiltration was not successful. But I just want to bring up the point that needs to be reinforced. Russia hacked not only the DNC, which they leaked, but they also hacked Republicans' emails. So when you see some of this unusual behavior by people like Lindsey Graham, and you put like a big question mark, like why is Lindsey Graham doing a complete 180 from the early days when he was so critical of Trump and so protective of Sessions and suddenly he's gone in the other direction? Just keep in the back of your mind the fact that they now are coming out and saying Pat Toomey, who's a Republican, was potentially hacked. Other uh, other attempts were successful. Marco Rubio has already told us his his uh, emails were hacked in 2016. So just remember that in the back of your head. Also, trip down memory lane on Friday. If you remember, many of us were involved in trying to get a recount shortly after the election because Trump's quote, victory was by roughly 77,000 votes in three states. One was Michigan, where he won by 10,000 votes. This is a really strange story. On Friday, the Detroit Free Press reported that clerks in every Michigan county received identical Freedom of Information Act requests, seeking copies of the ballots and other records from the 2016 election. The requests are signed by, quote, Emily, with no last name, and requests that records be sent to United Action Group at a post office box in Astoria, New York. Messages from the Detroit Free Press were not returned. Information requested, including absentee balance, envelopes the absentee balance were mailed in, records listing the names of voters who requested absentee ballots, and provisional ballots, both counted and uncounted. An election official in that state called Wisconsin to see if they had received a similar F, a Freedom of Information Request Act um, type of information, and they had not. So again, this is highly unusual, and it'd be curious to see who is collecting all this information on the vote in 2016, which was extraordinarily close, and why. Keep an eye on your story. Now I want to talk about Manafort and Cohen, which, as one person humorously described in a comment on my on my uh, Facebook feed, it felt like if you watch Days of Our Lives in the 1980s, the drama in the last 15 minutes of a weekly episode, because here we were in the beginning of the week waiting and waiting on the Manafort verdict. There was a lot of public concern early in the week raised that Trump continued to tweet and make public statements in support of Manafort and deriding the Mueller probe while the jury was not sequestered. So a lot of concern on how that verdict would turn out. And then we get to Tuesday. We did not know for sure anything was coming on Cohen. But if you remember in our last couple of podcasts, we've talked about how suddenly quiet Cohen had gone, as well as Lainey Davis, and what that could possibly mean. And these stories came to a collision seemingly in, script, in split screen kind of fashion on Tuesday. On Tuesday, Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal attorney for a long time and loyalist, pleaded guilty to eight counts of tax evasion, bank fraud, and campaign campaign finance violations, including two charges related to hush money payments. Cohen said he made the payments, quote, at the direction of an unnamed candidate in 2016, e.g. Trump, and that 150000 payment in August 2016 was for the, quote, principal purpose of influencing, end quote, the 2016 presidential election. The judge asked Cohen if he knew what he did was illegal, and he responded he did. 
Cohen said at the direction of a candidate, he used the money from a home equity line to pay $130,000 to Stephanie Clifford. Cohen also said at the direction of a candidate, he and David Pecker from AMI arranged to keep one of the alleged affairs from the public with a payment by National Enquirer of $150,000 to Karen McDougall. We've talked about both those stories. According to Cohen's plea filing in January 2017, after the election, executives at the Trump Organization directed Cohen be paid $420,000, reimbursing him for his payment of $130,000, along with money for taxes and expenses and a $60,000 bonus. According to the filing, the Trump Organization relied on a sham invoices by Cohen to conceal the nature of the payments. Cohen submitted monthly invoices and received all monthly checks totaling $420,000. Cohen is out on bail until his scheduled sentencing in December. According to court filings, Cohen faces a recommended prison sentence of 46 to 63 months. He is not yet formally cooperating in the Mueller probe at this point. Simultaneously, Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was convicted by a federal jury in Virginia on eight felony counts. The judge declared a mistrial on the other 10 counts where a unanimous jury consensus was not reached. The eight charges include five counts of tax fraud, one count of failure to file a report of foreign bank and financial accounts, and two counts of bank fraud. Manafort faces seven to nine years in prison. On Tuesday, Trump told reporters as he arrived in West Virginia for a campaign rally, he feels, quote, very badly for Manafort and, quote, sad things that happened, but it has, quote, nothing to do with Russia collusion. Again, Manafort's going to face another trial in September that does have something to do with Russia collusion, but we'll leave that aside. Trump said of Manafort, quote, he was a great man. He was with Ronald Reagan and many other people over the years. Sorry. Adding, quote, it doesn't involve me. Trump's also called the Mueller probe a witch hunt and a disgrace. On Tuesday, Cohen attorney Lenny Davis said Cohen has information that would be of interest to Mueller and is happy to share it, including the crime of hacking and whether Trump knew about it ahead of time. On Tuesday, Trump held this rally in West Virginia, a state he won by 40 points. He covered a bevy of topics, but did not mention Cohen or Manafort. The closest he got was attacking the Mueller probe, saying, quote, fake news and the Russian witch hunt. Where's the collusion? You know, they're still looking for collusion. Where's the collusion? Find some collusion. Hmm. On Tuesday, as all this was happening, a story that normally would get a lot of attention in any other time in our country got almost no attention. On Tuesday, Representative Duncan Hunter of California and his wife were indicted for using campaign funds for personal use. Of note here, folks, Hunter was the second Republican to endorse Trump after Representative Chris Collins of New York, who was indicted in week 91, which seems like seven years ago, but it was actually two weeks ago. On Thursday, Hunter shifted blame to his wife for the alleged campaign fund abuses, telling Fox News, quote, She was also the campaign manager. So whatever she did, that will be looked at too. Okay, real classy guy. Trump picks only the best people. 
On Wednesday, in morning tweets, Trump attacked Michael Cohen, saying, If anyone is looking for a good lawyer, I would strongly suggest that you don't retain the services of Michael Cohen. At the same time, he tweeted that he felt, quote, very badly for Paul Manafort and his wonderful family, adding, unlike Michael Cohen, he refused to, quote, break, making up stories in order to get a deal. Trump also falsely tweeted that Cohen pleaded guilty to two counts of campaign violations that are not a crime, and that Obama had a big campaign finance violation that was easily settled. Again, these lies just peddling them left and right, very active Twitter feeds this week. On Wednesday, Democrat senators called for a delay of the vote of Trump's Supreme Court nominee Kavanaugh, citing Manafort's criminal convictions and Cohen's guilty plea. By the end of the week, all the Senate, 10 Senate um, Democrats on that committee wrote a letter asking that that be delayed. On Wednesday, at the Daily Press Briefing, Secretary Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that Trump, quote, did nothing wrong seven times in response to reporters' questions on Manafort's guilty verdict and Cohen's guilty plea. Sanders also said it was a, quote, ridiculous accusation to say Trump has lied to the American people. Just as reference, the Washington Post has recorded 4,222 false or misleading statements by Trump, including changing his story on the Cohen payment several times. And to just give you a sense of how reliable Sanders is as a press secretary, she also told reporters she, quote, wasn't aware of any discussion of Trump pardoning Manafort. And the topic was, quote, not something that's been up for discussion. And then Thursday, the next day, Rudy Giuliani, who was golfing in Scotland in an interview with Sky News, said that Trump has asked lawyers whether he could pardon Manafort and other and asked other aides last week. His lawyers counseled him not to until after the Mueller probe. Giuliani also told Sky News that Cohen is a, quote, massive liar and that, quote, the American people would revolt if Trump were impeached. On Thursday, Sarah Sanders tried to clean things up in a statement that said that the topic of a pardon is not under active consideration in the White House. Okay, it's a little different than what you said 24 hours ago. And that Trump has, quote, not made a decision on pardoning Paul Manafort or anyone else. Then things got interesting. On Wednesday, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance issued a subpoena to Cohen as part of its ongoing probe of whether the Trump Foundation violated New York tax laws. And that's a case that we talked about in earlier episodes that has to do with the Trump Foundation and the way they used payments. You can click on the website and click through to Foundation and find those stories. The probe is separate from the New York Attorney General lawsuit against the Trump Foundation, a a spokesperson said, and saying we will work with the New York Attorney General and Manhattan District Attorney as appropriate. And then on Thursday, to formalize things, the New York Attorney General Barbara Underwood asked the Department of Taxation to make a referral on Cohen, an administrative step that allows her office to investigate him for possible violations of state tax law. The Washington Post reported that Cohen got the subpoena. He immediately called the Department of Taxation to offer to help. Cohen had no formal role in the Trump Foundation, but he had wide knowledge of Trump and his family's affairs. Cohen also had a role in at least one Trump Foundation matter, 
arranging a Ukrainian steel magnet, Viktor Pinchuk, to donate $150,000 to the Trump Foundation in 2015. So to clean this all up, Trump did what? He brought in a co-host of Fox and Friends, co-host Ainsley Earhart, and had her sit outside the White House on Wednesday and did an interview. To give you a sense of how objective she would be, Trump has, in May, as recently as May, praised her on his Twitter feed and encouraged people to buy her book. So that interview was set to air Thursday morning on Fox and Friends. On Wednesday evening on primetime, um, Earhart went on Hannity's show to promote the interview, and ahead of it, she told Sean Hannity that Trump told her he would consider a pardon. Oh, okay, we're changing the story yet again, uh, saying, I think he feels bad for Manafort. On Thursday, and this was a shocking interview where Trump again did himself in, another Lester Holt moment. Uh, On Thursday, the interview aired on Fox News. When Trump complained about reporters like to cover nonsense, Earhart responded right. She also asked Trump, quote, is the press the enemy of the people? What a great probing question from Fox and Friends, and didn't challenge him on his response. Trump told her that he knew about the hush money payments after they were made. Later on, he said, which again is contradicting his earlier statements. Trump also falsely claimed that because the payments came from his personal funds, there was no violation of campaign finance laws, saying they didn't come from the campaign. That's not even a campaign violation. False. When asked about Cohen and a longstanding legal practice, Trump said it's called flipping and it ought to be illegal, adding it's almost ought to be outlawed. It's not fair. When she asked Trump to grade himself, he said, I give myself an A plus, saying, I don't think any president has done what I've done. And that is, that is a true statement. (laughs) Trump also said if he got impeached, quote, I think the markets would crash. I think everyone would be very poor, explaining because without his thinking, you wouldn't see the numbers. You wouldn't believe. Oh my goodness. Okay. Welcome to reality. Trump also falsely claimed in the interview that Manafort wasn't with his campaign for long. Remember how he keeps talking about Ronald Reagan and Dole and Manafort, that he was not really his campaign manager for several months, including the RNC convention and the change in the platform there. But keeps throwing out that lie. He was just the coffee boy who got his coffee. Trump also falsely claimed that the FBI surveilled my campaign. And then Trump got into Sessions, saying that the only reason he gave him a job because he felt deep loyalty that Sessions, ne- but that's then complained that Sessions never took control of the Justice Department, adding Sessions' recusal. What kind of man is this? On Thursday, Sessions, who rarely pushes back, issued a statement saying, quote, while I am attorney general, the actions of the Department of Justice will not be improperly influenced by political considerations. On Friday, Trump shot back at Sessions, sarcastically tweeting it was great that Sessions is not influenced and said Sessions should look into corruption on the other side. Again, Trump encouraging his own Justice Department to go after his political opponents, which he seems to do daily. Trump listed on his multiple tweets the people that Sessions should be investigated, including deleted emails, Comey lies and leaks, Mueller conflicts, McCabe, Strzok, Page, or Pfizer abuse, Christopher Steele and his phony and corrupt dossier. And there were more. And then on Wednesday night, at shortly after midnight at 1.10 a.m., 
Trump tweeted in capital letters, no collusion, rigged witch hunt, then apparently went to sleep. Then we woke up Wednesday morning. Um, Paula Duncan, a Trump supporter that night, said she was a juror in the Marifort trial. Uh, and, and she said that Fox News, on Fox News, that there was one holdout that prevented the jury from convicting Manafort on all 18 counts. On Thursday, she told NBC News that the one holdout was a woman who does not believe, she does not believe was a Trump supporter. She said the juror did not much put much stock in Rich, Rick Gates' testimony, so we probably won't see him again. On Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal reported a turning point for Cohen on Trump was when his father, Maurice Cohen, a Holocaust survivor, told him he didn't survive the Holocaust to have his name sullied by Trump. Prosecutors also had testimony from Cohen's accountant and business partners, documents that implicated he and his wife, and details about hush money payments to women by David Pecker. On Thursday, um, Trump tried to distract attention away from all of these stories because there's more to come on Cohen, etc. He started treating about a segment on Tucker Carlson's show the night before and instructed Secretary, Secretary of State Pompeo to study South Africa land and farm seizures and expropriations, echoing talking points used by white nationalist groups of a racially charged conspiracy theory Trump tweeted, quote, South Africa government is now seizing land from white farmers. So he tried these shiny coins during the week, but he could not overcome the news. Because on Thursday, the New York Times reported the Manhattan District Attorney is considering pursuing charges against the Trump Organization and two senior company officials for hush money payments made to Stephanie Clifford. The investigation would focus on how the company accounted for its reimbursements to Cohen for the 130000 he paid Clifford. The office review is still in its early stages. If charges are brought, Trump has no power to pardon people and corporate entities convicted of state crimes. So that's an important point to note. And then also on Thursday, this was just, you know, the hits kept on coming. Vanity Fair reported David Pecker, the CEO of American Media Inc., also known as AMI, which owns National Enquirer, has been granted immunity by federal prosecutors for, for providing information on hush money payments. Pecker has met with prosecutors and provided details about payments he arranged with Cohen to silence Stephanie Clifford and McDougal. Pecker, like Cohen, has reportedly said Trump was aware of these payments. So now you have two people saying that Trump knew about them despite Trump's changing position and telling Ainsley Earhart he did not. Pecker, again, is also instrumental in why Cohen pleaded guilty. Vanity Fair also reported that to distract from headlines, Trump is considering taking away clearance from other former members of his own administration, including H.R. McMaster and Rex Tillerson. On Friday, the Wall Street Journal reported Alan Weisenberg, who served for decades as chief financial officer and executive vice president of the Trump organization has testified and been granted immunity. We've been talking about him in previous podcasts, the Al Capone concept. This is the man who, again, did all the bookkeeping, including a few years of Trump's tax returns. Along with Cohen and Pecker, Weiselberg is the third longtime Trump confidant to provide information on hush money payments. He testified before a grand jury in Manhattan, which we've discussed. 
Weiselberg was one of the Trump Organization's executives who helped reimburse Cohen for the $130,000 paid to Stephanie Clifford. On Friday, the hits keep, hits keep on coming. New York Times reported Reisenberg struck a deal in earlier for the summer with federal prosecutors, granting him immunity. So this has been going on for several months. Reportedly, the deal is narrow in scope, protecting Reisenberg from self-incrimination and sharing information with prosecutors about Cohen, but did not give him blanket immunity yet. Trump reportedly has been alternating between anger and a surprising state of calm, reporters said. One aide said he relishes the conflict, he enjoys the battle. But then on Friday, AP reported the National Enquirer kept a safe containing documents on hush money payments and stories that it killed as part of its cozy relationship with Trump leading up to the 2016 election. So if lordy, there are tapes, lordy, there's a safe. Sources told AP the safe was also a great source of power for Pecker, using embarrassing stories obtained about celebrities in these catch and kill deals in order to get them to grant favors in keeping in exchange for keeping their stories secret. Cohen's filing said Pecker, quote, offered to help deal with negative stories about Trump's relationships with women by helping the campaign in def- identify stories they could purchase to avoid publication. And then on Friday, this is from an earlier week, uh, back in April, CNN reported Dino Sajuden, the former doorman, who says he has knowledge of the alleged affair Trump had with an ex-housekeeper, which resulted in a child, has been released from his contract with AMI. Sajuddin was part of a catch and kill deal we talked about in, in week 74, in which he received $30,000 for the story, but it never ran. So we'll be hearing more about that in week 94, I'm sure. And I want to close out with some odds and ends, uh, because with all these stories I just read, with these people that have been convicted or plead or are granted immunity, you would think one Republican might come forward and say something against Trump, but zero. In fact, on Friday, um, several of the Republicans, and again, not just Graham, who has been doing these strange 180s, came forward and said that they would back Trump if he decided to fire uh, Jeff Sessions, but if he did it after midterms. Um, Also, we talked about Kavanaugh, um, and I just want to read out some more about this letter from the Senate Judiciary Committee Chair to Senate Judiciary Chair Grassley from all 10 Democrats, calling for postponing the Supreme Court confirmation hearings for Brett Kavanaugh. The letter cited concerns about a possible criminal wrongdoing by Trump, as well as doubts Kavanaugh believes a president can even be investigated and the unprecedented lack of transparency in the confirmation process. Those hearings are set to start September 4th. Just keep a note of that. And then on Friday, out of nowhere, again, another one of these shiny coins like the story about South Africa, Trump called off a planned visit to North Korea by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo days before the scheduled visit for the next round of nuclear talks. Trump did this in a series of tweets. Trump tweeted he asked Pompeo not to go, quote, because I feel we are not making sufficient progress with respect to denuclearization. The tweets mark an abrupt shift. Trump had previously claimed progress was being made. 
A CNN reporter tweeted that the State Department staffers were caught, quote, completely off guard by the cancellation, saying they had been briefing allies, embassies about their objectives just 10 minutes before. So again, Trump trying to distract. And then as we closed out the week, Senator John McCain's family announced that he was ending medical treatment for aggressive brain cancer. Trump and the White House were silent amid the news. Uh, We did lose Senator McCain last night, which is truly a loss for our country. Um, And then I just want to close out with a couple of other stories on odds and ends. Um, Politico said that despite Trump's Trump's advice that he's received from his attorneys, that they do expect him to pardon Manafort. So we'll be watching for that. And I touched in the introduction, and this is just to me, heartbreaking and disgusting all at one. It's very much reminiscent of what the Republicans did with Seth Rich and the White House complicit in that story. Axios had reported that Newt Gingrich wants to use the death of Molly Tibbetts, a 20-year-old University of Iowa student who was murdered by an undocumented immigrant from Mexico to help the Republicans in midterms. Gingrich said, again, I'm repeating this, if Molly Tibbetts is a household name by October, Democrats will be in deep trouble. Fox News all week has been repeatedly covering the story, and Trump mentioned it at his rallies in West Virginia on Tuesday. Gingrich said he sees the Tibbet story as a way to distract from Manafort and Cohen. He actually said this to Axios, saying we are living in two alternative political universes. The Tibbetts family has repeatedly asked that Molly's death not be politicized. On Friday, The Independent reported a network of Russian-linked Twitter accounts have been tweeting divisive comments about Molly Tibbetts' death in an apparent attempt to divert from stories about Cohen and Manafort. There was a flurry of activity starting Tuesday afternoon after news on Manafort and Cohen came out throughout Tuesday afternoon and then on Wednesday. Molly Tibbetts, hashtag Molly Tibbetts, was the most shared hashtag among Russian-linked accounts. So closing out the week, again, we have a lot um, of news that we should expect in this coming week. I think people felt this week that we could be seeing the end of Trump. But I need to stress that despite all these news stories, not a single Republican did anything. So in order to get Trump have any accountability for any of the things that have come up, it's going to take the midterms, folks. Take them seriously know that they're not necessarily going to be fair. In fact, they're not going to be fair. We have to work twice as hard to take our democracy back. So until next week, stay in touch. Thank you. Don't forget to leave a, um, if you're on Apple iPod or Google Podcasts, to leave a review and to share this on your social media. Have a great week. Thank you.